Welcome back everyone to part two of our equality episode. I'm joined again by Keithley Wilkinson and Rose Lewis from the equality team. Sadly, Lisa Cordery couldn't join us today, but we'll press on. So can you guys just begin by reintroducing yourselves for people who haven't listened to part one? So hello everyone, my name is Keithley Wilkinson and I am the Equality Manager for Canton Vale University Health Board. And my name's Rose and I'm the Equality Support Officer. Fantastic. So we finished part one, which was all about LGBT rights and health inequalities related to being someone from the LGBT community and what the health board is trying to do to a to address those problems and also show solidarity with members of that community. And we finished that conversation by talking about Pride. And Pride Cymru is coming up in August 2020 as a virtual Pride Cymru. And we spoke about some of the things that the health board is getting involved in. And I just wanted to stick on that theme to kind of segue into what this part of the episode is about. And that is Black Lives Matter. And by extension, health inequalities that you can attribute to race in the UK and, and in the NHS. So from my kind of cursory research around the subject, and I'm by no means an expert on it, there does seem to be somewhat of a link between how pride began and some of what we're seeing now and have seen around the Black Lives Matter movement and, and the wider civil rights agenda in the US, certainly. So do, do either of you guys want to say about how Pride began? Do you know the story? So we, we work in partnership with um, an organisation called Stonewall, Stonewall Cymru in particular. Both a really wonderful partnership working with them. We're one of their diversity champions. And if you go back to that particular name for that organisation, Stonewall, numerous decades ago, the first sort of riots that took place in, in, in New York, in, in Stonewall, um, the, one of the leading protagonists of that was um, a black trans woman. And um, so in essence, certainly in terms of pride, in terms of Stonewall, in terms of those sorts of activities, um, black people have been there since the very beginning. So the, the parallels, the activities, the inherent foundation of the movement in this context, I, I think is, um, is, is obvious. Um, however, I would also say that actually I think people forget about that um, or they don't know that story or alternatively they choose not to know that story. And that's actually part of a lot of things to do with black people's involvement in, in history overall. So yeah, so for me, it's um, the, the two go hand in, hand in glove. But as I say, I'm not sure how many people are aware of that. There is a, a film on Netflix and there are other platforms available, I'm sure, called Disclosure, which um, I would recommend people to to have a look, uh, have a look at um, for, for information um, um, purposes, and but also learning. It's a uh, it's a fascinating documentary. In part one, Lisa also recommended disclosure. But going back to the Stonewall riots, so like you say, people might not know this story unless they've looked into it. Those Stonewall riots were in uh, reaction to police brutality against the gay community in New yeah. York, and that's how it all started. Exactly. And like you say, one of the central figures of these protests was Marsha P. Johnson. But what I think is really interesting is that these, like in the 60s, the civil rights movement was still going on in America. Yet flash forward to today, 
and what the Stonewall riots has become have become pride, as we discussed, this kind of like part protest, part celebration. Whereas the Black Lives Matter protests, including the ones that we've seen this year in both the UK and in America, have been met with resistance. So it's that difference between how they've been gradually received over time, I think, is, is something really interesting. And I just want to pick your brains about that. Like, why is there this difference? It's, it's hard to say why there is a difference. I mean, racism, systemic, it's still it's still a problem in the UK. It never went away. It's evident now. And in terms of homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, they're all still present. People face it every day. I think with, with Pride, a lot of people are supporting it. But I think we said in the last one um, that there is sort of an argument that it becomes a corporate affair which I don't necessarily think it's true, but the more that organisations sign up for it, there's a, almost a domino effect, I personally feel. But I, I'm not sure why there is such a divide in the support. I can only assume that it's because that racism is still very much here in the UK and in institutions and in organisations. So, yeah, that's my personal opinion about it it's probably quite a big question to start us off this conversation yeah i don't expect that we'll have the answers but it is something that i think is really interesting i think one thing that the black lives matter protests is shedding light on especially this time around obviously we know that the movement was started in 2013 again it's a reaction to police brutality um that is, is what starts the initial protest but then the act of protesting has opened up the conversation around institutional racism in other organisations. And I think, you know, it's clear that it's touching every part of our lives. This, I guess, is another big question. But in, in your opinions, does this problem of systemic racism extend to the health service? The short answer is um, yes, of course it does. Because we're talking about 400 more than that years of miseducation, misinformation, um, ignorance, lack of understanding around trying to understand the reasons why people have tried to dehumanize other people, classify other people, categorize other people, and choosing those words in terms of stuff like apartheid, for example, in South Africa, you know, I choose those words because, as Rose said, this is about systems. I choose these words in terms of how people aren't educated. There's a famous proverb, if you like, is that know your history, know, your, know yourself. Um, and I don't think people actually spend enough time maybe thinking, reading, listening, talking around what some of this stuff actually means. And this is, um, I constantly refer to this as not a, a global crisis in a way, but a, a global opportunity for people to take time out. Um, and, and, you know, lots of people now have the opportunity to take some time out through, sadly, through the impact of COVID. But um, I know from talking to colleagues, people are picking up books, going on Google, watching some of the stuff on platforms like Netflix, you know, where their Black Lives Matter stuff around trying to understand some of this, because this is around, as they said, miseducation, misinformation around how one human being treats another human being because of skin colour and through nothing else. And how actually to dehumanise somebody and groups of people makes it easier for, for the world to go around, you know, in terms of that next question around empire, for example, for us in the UK and um, what was done to people who were who were not white and exploitation, the savagery, the violence, rape, t 
torture that was put on people so that people could become rich in essence it's it's interesting obviously for some people who might be going well oh God, here we go political correctness slavery ended hundreds of years ago why are we still talking about this stuff well actually slavery hasn't ended it's just got a new name it's just got a new just got a new face the fact that we're talking about it and needed to talk about it 400 years on and more is because actually there's there's no there's no justice around around it there's no full understanding of it so when people start to talk about race people tend to think that you know especially if you're black and talking about it that you've got a chip on your shoulder or somebody's playing the race card so it's something highly emotive about about race that um, makes it very very personal for people but if you're if you're black if you're asian if you're white if you're of any description in terms of the language that we use and even the language itself is um so complex and deliberately so i think sometimes i call it red herrings that people go off on one track so that you actually don't talk about the thing that we need to be talking about whether that's the elephant in the room to use a cliche or the emperor is naked to use another cliche it's about fear it's about stigma it's about part of human nature in a way which is that um you know, we're, we all are looking for somebody to kind of um, put down because it makes it makes our lives easier and better. I say all of us, but it isn't, it isn't all of us, obviously. But for me, it's uh, so that it, there's complexity in it because of the, the history, the emotions, etc. But it's also quite simple, really, which is um, some people get treated badly in service provision, not just health and housing, criminal justice system education simply because they look different to somebody else and people cast certain imagery and symbols in relation to that and that's you know that's through everything that's through i'm a big movie fan and one of the things for me is sometimes sitting down and watching movies and there's a classic thing around the film called notting hill set in london and there's one very small cameo for a black person in there and anybody who's been to notting hill will know that is certainly not reflective of that particular part of London. And that's what I mean about the imagery that, that gets sent out. And it's those sorts of things. I, I will say also, as a as a white person, I think I've witnessed people don't feel comfortable discussing race. Not, not everyone, but I do notice it more. People are, you know, they, they'll discuss LGBT and wanting to learn more about it, be open, have discussions. But when it comes to race, there's almost people freeze. And I think off the back of the Black Lives Movement, and as Keithley was saying, with COVID, people are have got more free time. Well, some people do have more free time. So they're, they're noticing what's going on because of technology and being able to film things now. People can see it. It can't be hidden away as much as it used to be able to. And then also on top of that, I think a lot of the time people think of racism as an individual thing, but it's not, um, you know, if we get into white privilege, it's the the advantages that I'm afforded just because I'm white. How easy it is for me to get a job, walk into a panel, and the majority of panels I've been to, they're being all white. But that's not representative of the society, and I and it's definitely not based on skill set either. And then when you look at decision making, it becomes even more complex. You have no diversity or little diversity within decision making. And then you have a blinkered approach where you're not thinking about 
a diverse needs because you don't have that lived experience. I, and I do, I do think the institutional racism is starting to be talked about more because that has a detrimental effect. You know, we've seen it with the COVID deaths. That's a, a massive example of health inequalities. And it's always ex existed before, but it, now it's almost, you, you can't hide it anymore. Let's take it back a couple of steps and focus quickly on the idea of, of privilege and why some people are, are so guarded when it comes to talking about race. I think in the UK and of course in America, we have this kind of like mythology of the self-made person, the person who's brought themselves up by their bootstraps and like everything that they have got, they've earned it and you know, they come across it. And I think it can be quite difficult if you're one of these people, you believe that you're a self-made man or woman to then have someone say, oh, well, you know what you've got you've got because you're because you're a white person and you've got this white privilege do you think that's one of the reasons why people kind of almost deny the fact that they have it yeah i i personally think so yeah and the thing with white privilege is it seems invisible if you're white but it's very apparent to if, if you're not white on a simplistic level if you're walking into say boots how easy is it to pick up plasters that are in your skin tone as a white person or shampoo for your hair type that's a very simplistic level but it's things like that you know watching adverts and then always being white people and then on top you have the unconscious bias within that people don't even realize that their biases are playing a part when you go into an interview we know that the majority of it is down to your how you come across your likability to the person that's interviewing you does somebody seem like they'll fit in with the team? So if you don't have that diversity already, the privilege is already is already set there when you walk through the door to the interview and you're white and the panel's white. And when we talk about equality, people often think it's about treating everybody the same, but it's not. It's about taking into the account diverse needs and adjusting the services that we provide to, to meet those needs. As a white person, often your needs are going to be met because the people in power are white. So for me as a, a nearly 60 year old guy, I'm, I've always been black. Um, I use that in terms of that social conditioning aspect of it, because if we actually look at it in terms of color, nobody is black and nobody is white and so forth. So there's, it, it, it's, this is all about social conditioning. This is how we're, how we're raised, how the media, um, other influences, um, that, that are around, that, are, that affect us, that we that we take on, and following on some points and that those just eloquently expressed there. You know, if you take the boots example, it's not just about the plasters. Um, it's it's walking into a shop as a black person, and um, within five steps of walking into any shop, it doesn't have to be boots, obviously. But and um, you find that um, the security guard is following you around. They don't follow other customers around. So it, it's, it's that stuff that I think people don't know about, people don't realise. And I think there's also something about stuff around contributions in terms of history, what have black people contributed to, to the world. Um, you know, when you think about something pertinent to us in terms of health, I don't know how many people have ever heard of Charles Drew. And so Charles Drew was an American who established, in essence, um, the roots of the first blood bank. And the sad irony of, of that is that he lost his life because when he went to a hospital, they refused to give him a blood transfusion. 
you know so it's those it's those sorts of things and the reason people don't know that stuff is because racism is around and black people can get paintings you know so as i said i'm a movie buff and the film came out um, last year it was all about thomas edison and it's kind of our rival and everybody thinks thomas edison brought light to the world and in many ways he he did but actually the filament that he first designed burnt out within seconds and there was a guy called Louis Latimer who actually developed the filament that we all now love and adore and again never black guy but how many people know that stuff you know we it's that's what I mean about how sometimes how the systems work some of this stuff is about miseducation so when people say you know oh God, why do we have to have black history month and there's another one that agrees with that but it's mainly because those stories will never get told and it's the same thing for gender and, you know, you, you only have to see the furore that took place about um, a woman being on, you know, one of our pound notes. It's it's that stuff. I think it's complex, um, but I also think it's very simple. And that is pick up a book, read and educate yourself. And actually, you might find some surprises in there for yourself around how this world came to be. And then one final thing for me, because I know I do talk too much, is one of the other points Rose made was this stuff around the notion of privilege and, and where it comes from. People don't have to think about certain things. And if you're white, it's just part and parcel of, of your life. For people who are not white, sometimes they have to think, we have to think about things, you know, the stereotypes around it. You know, if I if I get angry with somebody, sometimes people would say that um, I'm being aggressive. But when somebody who doesn't look like me gets angry or looks like you, Brent, oh, you know, you just got a little bit upset or you got a little bit angry. Those are the things around what microaggressions are. And then unfortunately, a lot of this stuff is either deliberate, it feels like sometimes deliberately made consciously difficult to explain, you know. So I know that the phrase Black Lives Matter is upsetting for people, makes people angry, it's divisive for some people. I think part of that's because they actually haven't taken time to understand what those three words mean. You know, Black Lives Matter is not saying it's only black lives matter it's not saying um, that black lives are more important than any other lives what it's saying is that right now in this moment there needs to be a realization that some people's lives black people's lives are systematically impacted on in really extreme negative ways that leads to massive inequalities not just in health but also as i said earlier in terms of education the criminal justice system and Having worked in some of those fields, in fact, all those three fields, I, 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 I saw that, I see that. Right now, for us as an organization, both Rose and I are dealing with and we're getting involved with lots of issues around our black staff and also some of our white staff who were sharing their experiences and observations of what they've seen within our organization. And we sometimes get asked for that organization, is there racism? And People get surprised when I say, yes, of course there is. And it, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier around our 15 and a half thousand staff reflect society. So, you know, we have a responsibility trying to get people to understand what our values are around this, which is, you know, there should be a, not a zero tolerance of racism, um, but a, a total unacceptability about it, because tolerance is about putting up with, as I said last time. And we've got to get past that. And I think organizationally, we are going to be trying to do that. We have to take a an anti-racism approach to some to this stuff, not a neutral. Be very, very clear that it's totally unacceptable. And that means our processes, our procedures, our responses to when we hear things and when we see things, we have to challenge stuff. It's the bias 
that Rose was expressing earlier and holding her hand up and saying, yeah, actually, that is what it's about. And I'm willing to take some time to, to try and understand some of this stuff. But the other keyword that Rose used there was, it's uncomfortable. People find it uncomfortable, but it doesn't have to be. I think if people are sensitive around this in terms of showing genuine interest, genuine warmth, then actually the response people will get back will be one where you can have a, a conversation about it that hopefully wouldn't turn into some sort of heated debate. And even if it comes to agreeing to disagree, it is about, I think, that understanding. And that issue of bias, going back to what I was saying around COVID, is one of the things that has, has really shocked me is when the state in England have been giving out food parcels, they've been giving out food parcels to a white Christian diet so they've been mm. inedible for certain areas of the population just because seemingly they haven't been considered. That's the bit about some of this about the unconscious bit. That's not about being malicious or deliberate. You, you might want to say it's thoughtless and, and thinking. And that is the case. But I, I also I also think that what we've also got to remember that is this is not just about saying just because you have an all-white board or a, an all-white decision-making group that automatically means there's no diversity. This is about diversity of mind, just as much as it is about diversity of disability, if you like, so that you can and should lead from a position of inclusivity. So when we talk about good leaders, um, um, good people, we should be taking those things into account. And certainly for me, so when I talk about somebody who I think is a good person in terms of my social life, if you like. Part of it is that they understand different perspectives. They don't always have to agree with my perspective on it, but I know I'm in company where people understand viewpoints. So there's an awareness of it, so that in terms of the food banks, for example, and the people dishing out food, that you've got people on those boards or on those groups who understand that actually, when I'm going into a particular area of Cardiff, for example, I need to take into account the demographics of who lives there. And just people just stopping and asking themselves those those sorts of questions instead of just automatically assuming what was the free to use a Western palette. Um, in essence, it's just about taking into account who generally people are um, and not just to go and actually changing some of that. And actually, we've seen some of that, thankfully, now. You know, on one level, it's great that curry is the number one favorite food in the UK. But it doesn't hide the fact that actually on Friday nights and Saturday nights, some staff in certain restaurants and some staff in our hospitals and our units and stuff will get abused by people who've just come from the curry house. That's the complexity of it. The, how do you get to a point where people will happily eat food of otherness and then get a little bit of alcohol or something else inside them and all of a sudden that otherness is changed and morphed into wanting to commit acts of violence and to verbally abuse people. The, the privilege is that I think I would recommend people looking that up for themselves and there's privilege tests out there that take five minutes to have a look at, asking quite fundamental questions like, you know, do you ever have to stop and think about walking into a shop and being followed by security guard? Do you ever have to think about driving your car and, and not being stopped because you've got a nice car? People live lives that sometimes overshadow other things. And I think this, this moment in time, in terms of COVID-19 and in terms of Black Lives Matter, we're, we're, at, a, we're at a crossroads. And I think it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to 
to take a, a real stance about saying the new normal, what we want it to be. Part of the new normal for me would be that actually racism, transphobia, all those things are put in the dustbin. I know that's not going to happen, but that's what I would want. It's a big ask. <laughs> but if, if we don't start working towards it, the consequences are huge. I just wanted to go back to the consequences of racism, albeit conscious or unconscious, within the UK and specifically within health. This is, you know, after all, a podcast about the NHS. And one example of, of like the huge consequences of, of this bias within the NHS, and I'm sure that the majority of midwives that you asked about this would probably say that they are not racist and they would probably find the, these figures abhorrent. But last year, mm. the UK Confidential Inquiry into Maternal Deaths found that black mothers are five times more likely to die as a result of complications in pregnancy than their white peers. That is a massive stat. And that is a huge consequence of, of what we've been talking about. And there's been a lot of work into looking at what's causing this. And one of the things that is being hypothesized as a cause of it is simply a dismissal of pain in black patients. Well, this is something that seems to be quite common across different aspects of health. A lot of that comes down to, again, it's the unconscious bias that play a part in how people interact and in their decision making. So somebody who works in maternity has decision making. Somebody who works in reception has decision making. It does boil down, well, not completely boil down to it, but it takes a large proportion of the fact that decision making is causing these effects that come after it. There are no simple answers per se that are I think there's an element of complexity in it, though there's the phrase I use is simply complex because I think it is an issue of the both. There's, there's clearly racism at play here. I don't think you can deny that and, and unpack that, that racism, or unless people want to go with at least stereotyping, is that element of a belief system that says black people can take more pain than white people. Where does all that stuff come from? But also, I think sometimes it is about that element of people's attitudes, stereotypes, thought processes, belief systems that people have about other people. As you said, I think it, it, it's probably a bit more complex for someone like me to give a kind of almost trite response to it. But it's very, 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 very sad for those families who have had to put up with those sorts of actions, but also sometimes inaction. It's not just about what we do, sometimes also about what we don't do. And sometimes what we don't do is to check out and ask people questions. We make massive assumptions, um, myself included, and we need to ask, don't assume. And, you know, and that's one of the things certainly we wanted to try and, and change. You know, we recognize the organization recognizes that racism is around and we're going to want to try and do something about that and change that and educate and get people to learn and to understand some of this stuff looking at planning for the future while whilst living now there is something about needing to affect meaningful change and one of the things we're clear about is is that whatever we do we need to do it right first time history has shown that lots of reports around race and other issues get written and lots of recommendations get written people start to go down the road well whilst they're in that goldfish bowl and then once they're out of the goldfish bowl because something else has come along, um, people stop doing it. And one of the things we're saying to the board members was that we're going to fail at some of this. We're going to get some of this stuff wrong. But the, the key challenge is what we do when we get it wrong. 
So do we then stop because, oh, it's too hard? Or do we pick ourselves up and continue and learn meaningful lessons from it? We get back on that horse, we get back on that bike to try and affect change. But, and one of the key important things, I think, is, is that we recognise that this is a two-way street. Organisationally, can't be just about staff and or patients. You need to think about that in terms of all our stakeholders. We need to get out into the communities much more. We need to hear... Um, their voices um, we need to have engagement we need to have conversations to understand what all this really means we still have colleagues who don't feel that they can be then whole selves within that organization without somebody feeling that it's okay and it's only a bit of banter and it's only a joke to consistently and continuously on a daily basis negatively remark on somebody's difference in in a manner that that can be soul destroying. The health impact of that is very visible. I don't know if this stuff is still around or this um, nursery rhyme thing. Sticks and stones may break your bones, the names will never hurt you. I have no idea who came up with that, that little gem, but it's nonsense. You ask anyone who's been bullied as a child or harassed in, in that kind of way, or your name's being called on a daily basis, it, it impacts on you as an individual. The damage to someone's mental health and, and well-being is there for all the world to see. And people know this, you know, well, I'm just having a bit of fun calling you this, that and the other. No, you knew exactly what you were doing. You know what you're doing. You know the impact because actually nobody wants to be called bad names. I'm nearly six. I've lived through some horrible experiences, not in the US, but in the UK, in Wales, in Cardiff. One of the things around living in in this country is this notion that you know there's a welcome for you in the hillside of wales it's fantasy stuff the daily working and living reality for people who look like me or very similar to me is that some of that stuff will be micro some of that stuff will be macro you turn on the radio you hear that you're not welcome look at a newspaper you're not welcome you watch tv programs you don't see yourself in them or you go back in terms of growing up you know People my age remember stuff like Love Thy Neighbor, Alf Garnet, you know, all those sorts of things. And I know people have a real issue now with whether or not, you know, episodes of certain TV shows where you've got protagonists now saying, oh, they apologize for doing blackface and all this. And I just, I just think, really, this stuff was wrong 60 years ago. It's always been wrong. So I don't have sympathy for any of those individuals in that kind of context. But I also think and this might be controversial, but actually those programs should keep that stuff in there instead of taking them off the platforms and so forth because people should see and understand that at a given time, some people thought this was acceptable. And I, I, and I know not everyone's going to agree with that. And, and in terms of people that look like me, not everyone's going to agree with that. But I do think it's really important that people don't kind of forget. And the moment we start taking these things down, it, it means people will forget. This is how some people thought it was okay to, how to treat another human being and poke fun at in, in that way. Um, and I know I may be coming across in this podcast as kind of humorless, but I think you can have humor and find things funny and find things amusing without it being at the expense of whole groups of people based on stereotypes, based on assumptions, based on made-up stuff. There's, there's an argument to be made that the censoring of TV programmes distracts from some of the bigger issues at hand. Do you know what I mean? Do, do, you, think, do you think it is a distraction? Do you think it, it, it does... Yeah, I do positively? think it's a distraction. 
No, I think it, I, I do think it's a distraction. You know, for all those individuals who were going through their guilt trips around some of this stuff. So the focus on that, um, on headlines saying so and so apologizes for this and apologizes for that. Meanwhile, we don't talk about why there's such a disparity. You know, in the media, there's a lot to blame for that. They focus on certain things, they perpetuate certain things, both the press, written word, and, and the media in terms of the visual word, and also audio as well, listening to, you know, the shock jocks. You know, even the UK now is getting into that a little bit more. And don't get me wrong, I, I think people do need to be able to express themselves, even with views that I obviously that I wouldn't, wouldn't agree with. But as I say, I, I think that we're fed certain things and, and kind of suddenly told what we what we should be talking about at the water cooler on a on a Monday morning. Meanwhile, people's lives are getting restricted. People's lives are getting destroyed. People's lives are leading to tragedy, suicide, mental health issues. But we're kind of getting told not to think about that stuff, but instead think about the fact that a celebrity wants to apologize for putting blackface on. In the scheme of things, should that be my number one thought on a on a Monday morning? Or if I am a caring person, if I am a citizen of this world, um, I should be concerned about stuff that is happening to my fellow human being. It, it's that, but no one wants to talk about that. We we want to we want our summer holiday, two weeks summer holiday. We want a nice car every couple of years. We'll put a bit of money in, into a charity box, etc. For most, for lots of people, I think that's what lives are about because because of the way the world is at the present time. And thankfully, however, there are groups, lots of groups of people who look at the world in a different way. Well, one of those groups of people is the Black Lives Matter movement. And circling back to the, the stat about black pregnant mothers being five times more likely to die than their white peers, does that not illustrate really neatly why it should be called Black Lives Matter, not All Lives Matter. Because no one's saying that any pregnant mother, her, her life and her baby's life doesn't matter. But when it's so crystal clear that one particular group of this part of society is in much greater risk of death than any other, then surely the attention should be put on them to prevent them from ending up as these statistics, right? Yeah, and I think that goes back to knowing, if we're talking about a health board, knowing your patients, knowing your public in what you serve by addressing different needs as well, as as well as looking inward in terms of being aware of being anti-racist and putting in the work and the money into organisations. Because it is, it is also involves a lot of training as well. I mean, unconscious bias which I will say, we all have it, I have it, and it's a continuous thing because over a lifetime of receiving messages, it's, it's almost, you're not even going to realise that it's happening when you're making these decisions. The thing is, it's one example of many, 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 many examples across the whole of when you look at health inequalities or if you look at systems in terms of education or, or in the prison system, it's one of many examples of why Black Lives Matter, that movement exists. Like you were saying, it's about addressing these disadvantages that have been going on for 500 years or more and looking at it and saying, right, what can, what can we do differently now? Because the way that we're doing things at the moment is, is not working. 
you know, when, we, when we're having disproportionate amount of deaths, when these can be avoided, there's something serious going on. And this is why things like, you know, when we talk about grassroots uh, activism, the reason why things like this come about is because the systems in place are not doing what needs to be done. I'm not sure how I can say that, but that is basically why these movements come about when, you know, you hit a, a, a breaking point of that you need to have change. And the change is not going to come from, you know, the institutions around you or the organisations that you work for. So it needs to be driven from outside. You know, and we are at a, a crossroads. We are at a, uh, we are being given an opportunity to, to do what Rose is just, again, eloquently articulated around systems, around organisations, but also around us as individuals. And, you know, if we don't have the interest and we don't have the will, then we're not going to pick up the book. We're not going to um, start a conversation. Sometimes a member of staff in, in that organisation may be in a bad mood or may not behave in a way that people might have been accustomed to because on the way into work, on the bus, walking down the street, passing a car, somebody is shouted abuse at them. Um, we don't think of those things. What we do is we see somebody angry, upset, and we just go with that. We don't bother to, to, to try and ask. But the, that fundamental thing around the Black Lives Matter is, is just to say, look, there are experiences that keep on happening, they keep on happening, they keep on happening to Black people. So that's what it's about, and saying, look, this has to change, and we need everybody to understand that. I, I think the fundamental message for us at all as human beings is, is that surely we don't want people to be treated badly just because their skin pigmentation is slightly different from somebody else. I don't know if this will be the actual catalyst for real meaningful change, but I want to believe that it will be and that this won't happen again. But I think certainly for us in this organisation, that we're going to want to make meaningful change. I think we have to be optimistic that this is a, an opportunity that we shouldn't have failed to grasp, because I think generations that come after us will be asking the question, why do we do something about it? So let's focus on optimism and some positives for the future and, and the action that we can take now. I didn't work for the health board when the Black Lives Matter movement first came to prominence. But, but this time around, I obviously did. And I found it very heartening that the chief executive came out in solidarity with the movement. Can you remember if previous chief executives had, had come out publicly in solidarity with, with a movement like Black Lives Matter? So the answer to this is no, I, I can't remember previous chief execs getting involved in anything like this in the way that um, Len has. Mm. And what I'm conscious of is... Um, if I if I say that, is Len going to be happy kind of um, allowing, be seen to allow somebody to, to have a go at his predecessors in, in that kind of manner? I'm not having a okay. go at Len's predecessors no, but, at all. Okay, I'm, not, that's no, but in, I'm not implying that they were in any way racist. But what I wanted to illustrate with this question is how yeah. far-reaching the Black Lives Matter movement has become now. And I think that is a really positive thing. For, okay. for a movement that started okay. in the States to have been recognised and supported by the chief exec of a, a regional Welsh health okay. organisation, I think is a really good thing because I think it it's giving 
the staff of Cardiff and Vale UHB now the permission to start to take action against it. Okay, I got you. So, so with that in mind, it was great to see Len come out in support of, of Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. But we all yeah. know, and I think everyone knows, that actions in cases like this are better than words. Actions speak louder than words is the, is the phrase. I don't know why I didn't say that the first time. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to ask you both, A, what action is the UHB currently taking to address these health inequalities? And B, what would you like to see more of? Firstly, we're receiving feedback from staff across the organisation, like Keithley said. Because I think you can't really go somewhere if you don't really know where where you're at. And there'll be racism that's still going on that we're unaware of. But we have had quite a few members of staff coming forward and people talking on behalf of them as well. Even having that call out and that coming from Len, just off the back of that, you know, we started to get emails coming through, phone calls. So that has been something that's been different from before. I know that Kiffy will say about the presentation that he did on Monday with Rachel Goodman to the senior exec that, that was really well received. In terms of what I'm doing at the moment, HR are currently working on a recruitment toolkit and how we say about systemic racism, some of the things that can happen is one of the examples is when we only advertise through NHS jobs because we're closing off a job market to populations of people and a lot of the time you might find that you know this is the saying that um once you're in the nhs you're in because a lot of the time people go from one position to another position to another position and we're looking at opening up the recruitment process and working with community organizations to get our vacancies out there rather than just relying on one approach where we're saying or the individual needs to come to us but a lot of the time people aren't aware of how they apply for the NHS. They're not aware of the values-based system that we have in recruitment. You are once you're in, but you're not if you're on the outside. So that's some of the work that we've been doing. Also, obviously, if you're looking at training, it's pretty impossible for two people to train a whole health board on many different issues, like training them on hate crime, anti-racism and conscious bias alone. You know, you wouldn't have the capacity to do that alongside your other job roles. So we're working with external organisations like Race Quality First and having their expertise come in to hopefully bring in training that's funded by Welsh Government. So there'll be hate crime workshops. And also I will say that departments can go to that organisation and organise them themselves if they wanted to. At the moment, we're just working in one area and seeing how it pans out. What we've seen over the last few months has been a real sea change, certainly in terms of us as an organisation, to be so actively involved. I think Len's statement, I know for some people to have a CEO talk about this and be open around the self-reflection, it's just wonderful to to see the, the acid test and, and Len knows this for himself um, and has said this himself is you know it's about what what happens next what 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 are we going to be doing about this not just for us as individuals but a, as a collective one of the things we talked about was around you know the, the history of the nhs and the history of the nhs was that this is service provision um, accessible to all the board is very clear about that what they don't want is people not to come and use our services because of who they are, who they love, what they believe, and to think that they can't come and use our services because of those reasons. And the board very clear that that's not acceptable. And that notion of trying to get this right and to get it right the first time so that we sustain this. We have to sustain this. This can't be a hashtag trending. 
you know, because if you notice, today, as we record this, Thursday the 16th of July, I can't remember the last time seen on a news item anything to do with Black Lives Matter that lasts anything longer than kind of 30 seconds. So already it's it's going off the agenda in, in terms of the media and, and the press, and that's what happens. But organisationally, we, we've recognised that, and what we're trying to do is to do work that will be meaningful. So we laid out to with the board's agreement and support a, a plan that we would like to undertake that will make for sustainability so that actually we will as a as an organization be continuing this work this time next year the year after the year after that and the year after that and the year after that because we recognize the systems have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years unconscious bias has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years this is not an easy fix this is not a a quick when to use that sort of language this has to be about sustainability and working on with our staff uh, training in a way that yours is identified education taking into account culture of the organization how do we how do we do things in terms of recruitment for example the well-being of our staff this is a part of people's lives we spend if we're fortunate to have a job and we work full-time or, or part-time. We spend a lot of time with our work colleagues, sometimes more waking hours than we do with our, with our partners and our husbands and our wives and our loved ones and, and people who are important to us. And so that's why this stuff is important. It, it is frustrating sometimes to hear people have an opposite view of that, that it's not important. And I get that some people don't want to be best friends with their work colleagues. That's, that's fine. But that doesn't mean that... Uh, you shouldn't be have a, a, at least a minimal interest in what it's like for somebody to come into work after just being abused on our premises. I mean, there's I could share some awful stories and experiences that um, our patients and our staff have had in terms of the way some of our colleagues have behaved towards them. You know, and and those things have to have to have to change. Not just for breaching the Equality Act. But because of social and moral responsibilities that we all should have around home when human being treats another human being. The board sponsoring this, the board support, the CEO support is significant because if we if we didn't have that, we couldn't do some of the things that we want to do, like get out into the communities much more in, in a way that is not just talking to the community about health inequalities, but also in terms of we have around 350 different types of jobs in the in the health service. You know, so Rosie and um, colleagues like Alan and Emma have gone out into schools, have begun to go into schools to talk about what we do. And I've gone out into communities as well to talk about what we do, but also to talk to them about the jobs because people leave one organisation, leave Cardiff and Bale to go to Comtaf and the person from Comtaf leaves Comtaf to go to and Iron Bevan and Iron Bevan leaves and Iron Bevan to come to here. And so you have, in the nicest, lovely possible way, we have same faces just wrapped around the organization. And we don't get enough of getting new people in. And, and new people will bring some new ideas, different ideas that may actually help improve the service. So we called our presentation on Monday, we called it Improvement Through Inclusion. In the way that Rose is described, and if you have accessibility to 100% of the population as opposed to 20% of the population, who can argue and say that that's not good? If you do and change our practice for one group of people, 
it potentially benefits other groups of people. So when we talk about things like easy read versions of documents, that's not just about somebody, for somebody who might have a learning disability. That's actually for people whose reading ability might not be as high as we might have expected. All of us worked in this organisation for numerous years. We've all seen and read numerous papers that are 25 pages long, which really are just saying one thing. Well, let's make it one page, use diagrams, use informatics, and make it readable and accessible in, in, in that kind of manner. It's those things, and those benefits, those benefit people. And I think it benefits us. They benefit our patients, they benefit the public, they benefit us as staff members, whether we live in Carrington Vale or whether we live outside and our uh, health provider is Myron Bevan or Kuntak or Swansea Bay or, or whoever. Great to hear about some of the organisational change that's ongoing and the work around recruitment that's coming up sounds really positive and uh, it's not something I've ever really considered I just thought that NHS jobs was easy enough for anyone to access but being told that that's not the case is um is really surprising so the job you're in how did you hear about it Bryn I was in the team already in a different position no but so what, what about your first job in here uh, yeah in the, in the NHS so my first job in the NHS I took a maternity cover contract to be an administrator for the Stop Smoking Wales service and then every job I've had since then has been because someone else in the team has said oh there's this job going you might be quite good at that exactly it's, it's a go. thing about networks so you know who I know tells somebody else about a job so with me my dad worked in the NHS my brother works in the NHS ever since I went into the NHS in Bristol I've just stayed in the NHS and it, it is I would say easy to move around once you're in if you're applying from the outside you know you're not going to know about values-based recruitment you don't know what they're looking for and also some jobs are on nhs jobs and some other jobs are only on our websites don't get me wrong i, it's, I know it sounds like i'm having to go to any jobs and I, I don't mean to my argument really is about using one way of advertising our jobs is, is what my issue is so when i first came here on the secondment my predecessor, the job went out on any of his jobs, and my predecessor put this job out to everybody she knew, and they passed that on to everybody they knew. That's what I'm talking about. I've never heard of NHS jobs. So I did a quick straw poll around my neighbours here. None of them have heard of NHS jobs. So if, you, if, you, if you've not heard of them, then you, can't, you won't look at them. If you won't look at them, you won't be able to get in. And, and in terms of various communities, if it's not on your radar, all you're going to do is, you know, everybody's heard of Indeed, um, for example, I'm sure. It's that. It's about the promotion of, of that in, in terms of communities. The days of advertising careers when I was younger, the scene the scene is gone. But we need to be going out into communities such as those in Newtown, for example, and advertising our jobs there we still use NHS jobs. What we've done would be slightly different. It would be actually go out into those communities to let them know there's this website called NHS jobs. And then we get into the whole issue of, geez, the application forms. Gee, was what a process. Mm. Can I share something with you guys, though, just, just quickly? Mm. When Rose asked me how I got this job, I instantly mm. felt very, very defensive. Kind of had this microsecond <laughs> of thinking, well, I, des- I, I work hard. I do this job well. I deserve to be in this job. And I... and recognizing that behavior in myself even if it was just fleeting um 
I think is testament to this conversation that we've that we've just had. I hope. Yeah, I'm. I've been the same. You know, I've gone from department to department. I'm in. You know, it's that sort of culture that we have, and it's evident when people say, you know, oh, I'll stay in the NHS until retirement. It is about people having the option of being able to apply or to show an interest, and then part of that process in terms of the Black Lives Matter stuff is, is the people being judged, you know, we, we get into math and into king territory here, don't we? We get into, you know, we wanted these children to be judged by the content of the character, not the colour of the skin. It is about that turning that dream into a reality. It's all the cliche stuff around around that. And I, and I don't, I'm not demeaning um, that dream in any shape or form. Um, it certainly helps um, shape me, especially now as a parent. But the thing around the recruitment practices and it is that bit about culturally, if you do and go to the same people all the time, you're only going to get the same people all the time. And if we are meaningful around stuff around innovation and improvement, that has to extend to bringing different people in with different views and recognizing, however, there may be some challenges around that because culturally, the way we've done things will need, will need to change and, and we will come across people who are not going to want to change the status quo. I'm happy with the way things are because actually my life's made easier. I don't have to worry about anything. So I'm, I'm happy. Um, well, actually, we should be saying, actually, we should be challenging that and saying, actually, we need to bring the difference in. We need to be bringing diversity in. And I know there's some managers out there who will be saying quite the opposite. It's more trouble than it's worth. It means I, I can't say jokes I want to say and all those sorts of things. I know some managers feel and find that hard work, which I find very sad. This has to be about people's skill set. Then we make the adjustments that are necessary. We make the changes. There is an argument to be made that in the public sector and in the health sector, especially, the need for diversity is even greater because we're not serving shareholders for profit. Yeah, but it, it is, you know, um, it, it's about representation. We get up in the morning to, I hope, to help people. You don't get up in the morning to help certain people. Certainly that's what it shouldn't be. It should be those guiding principles from 1948 and, and how we maintain, how we sustain all those things amongst the challenges that we face and as with COVID-19 and whatever going to be coming down the road in for the for future generations. Well, I've just got a couple more questions. It was fascinating to hear your thoughts and, and what's happening around organisational change. But the next one is around kind of changing your behaviour as an individual. And I'm thinking probably most about allyship. Um, okay. And for, for someone like me, who has lived a privileged life, who's never had to deal with racism. And, and, and now, you know, I consider myself an ally. What more should someone like me be doing? I'll talk about in terms of being an ally from my point of view. People say a lot about asking questions, but there there is a fine line because when you're asking people about their lived experience of, of being through, of experiencing racism, it's traumatic, you know, and people need to take into account that they can't just acquire that information or for the betterment of their knowledge because it's affecting someone else's well-being. I mean, if that conversation opens up, then that's fine. But there are books out there. There's, there's documentaries. There's plenty of information sources that you can get. And like what Keith Lee was saying earlier about understanding history, I think a lot of the time when people say understanding your history, as a white person, people don't think about their own history. If you understand your own history, you can understand your white privilege 
and then that's a form of a basis to go on from 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 there but I think the first first stop is to understand your privilege and how that plays a part to also really important is to challenge um I know a lot of people feel uncomfortable about it but you can challenge that behavior and there's different ways to challenge it as well but I think if someone's making a racist remark or an offensive remark you should be able to challenge that person and ask the person who has received it are they okay I think a lot of the time people freeze but you know if someone's just gone through that you should ask the individual like how are you and I think a lot of the time people just almost ignore it and pretend it's not happening but by doing things like that you become part of you become complicit yeah I'll say you'll become complicit by being silent so it's about speaking it and also if you're in those roles that you're able to make decision making it's to take into account those voices you know we, we say a lot that we want people to be equality champions but I think and this is in terms of equality champion on on race in terms of LGBT in terms of gender everyone can be an equality champion in their role everyone has decision making I mean obviously it's different as you if you get certain roles but I think it's about being aware of your unconscious bias as well and like you said earlier you know you you took a second and you were like oh why did I feel defensive well that's really good and that's part of it you know sometimes I'll do it well go oh wait did I think something why did I think that it's about questioning your own beliefs and almost the information of however many years for me 31 years of being alive why have I come to that belief or why am I thinking that with the internet if you do have the internet you can get that information and I think that's what's a lot different than maybe 15 years ago is that the information is out there you're not just you know it's not just the mainstream television outlets or the newspapers there's stuff out there that you can see there's there's community organizations that you can join you know they're doing zoom calls race equality first black lives matter movement you know they're giving up their time outside of their day jobs and they're putting on informative webinars you know these things can be attended the organizations can be found they're out there there's plenty in Cardiff there's ones in Swansea the information is there it's just got to go and seek it I will say challenge and I think as a health board I don't think you know we we say in our policies zero tolerance and on that basis there should be no problem about challenging another staff member's behavior if they're offensive because it's not a joke you know, if you're laughing at somebody else's expense, that's it's not a joke. It's not very funny. You know, you're affecting somebody else's well-being. They've come to work to do something and then they're being treated in that way. So I think we'll have obligation. And I'm sure I've been there where I've witnessed behavior. I think we can all probably think of a time that we've we've witnessed something and there's different ways of going about it. There's no one right way. But as long as you go and challenge it in your own way, I think that's the first place to start. Very eloquently put there, Rose, I think. Following up from what Rose has said and some of the things that um, I said a bit earlier about articles um, and that stuff about reading. So there's a BBC article by a guy called Dr. Keon West. If you Googled Dr. Keon West, K-E-O-N West, and put in, I'm, I'm not racist, then, then that will be a good start. There's also the white privilege test, if you were to, to Google that, that. There's also the Harvard Implicit Association test, which is a test I recommend on when I'm undertaking the unconscious bias training sessions that, that we run. So there's a couple of things there just to people want to get started. I think the fundamental question, 
or the answer to the question is really about trying as much as you can be in a safe way not to be a bystander to some of this, this stuff you know and rose said if you're observing stuff and something makes you feel uncomfortable then you should be finding a way of saying that even if it's just i don't like what you just said i don't find that funny i don't appreciate that people have to own it and as rose also said and i've said this on my course this courses as well um anybody who says they challenge every single time i find hard to believe because it is exhausting and it can be overwhelming and it can impact but Sometimes it's about knowing when to challenge just as much as it is about knowing how to challenge. And sometimes doing it in front of a group of people is not the best way of doing it. Sometimes it is about putting somebody aside and writing an email. And one of the things Rose and I talk about a lot when we talk about stuff around challenges is that the test is for me is at the end of the day, can you put your head on the pillow and fall asleep knowing that you did the right thing about whatever the right thing might be about, whether it is about this sort of stuff or something else. And if you can do that, then I think, yeah, have a good night's sleep. It's, it's as simple as that, I think. So we mentioned it around the LGBT episode. You guys mentioned the documentary on Netflix called Disclosure. And you mentioned it a couple of times in, in this conversation as well about the need for people to educate themselves around the issues. So I was wondering, other than the articles that you just mentioned, Keithley, if you have any suggestions for like any books, films, podcasts, any form of culture that you found particularly useful around the subject. Can I start by suggesting some that I've been, I guess, consuming? Okay, yeah, of course, yeah. So I'm reading a great book at the moment called They Can't Kill Us All. It's a book by Wesley Lowry, and it's an account of the 2014 Black Lives Matter protests in Ferguson. Um, so he's a, he's a black... Washington Post reporter and he was stationed mm. in the protests and it's kind of his eyewitness account of, uh, of what it's like to be on the front line of these protests and the, and the, the police reaction to them and it's, it's like even though he writes in a really matter-of-fact way it's still quite shocking some of the things that that he writes about and it's it's a lot of the stuff that you you wouldn't have seen televised even even though Ferguson especially had a lot of coverage so I think that gives a really good insight into what is at stake when you protest these issues, especially in America. But then to bring it back to the UK, for any other sort of podcast nerds like me out there, I've got to recommend, have you heard George's podcast by George the Poet on, on the BBC? Oh, yeah. That's fantastic. Mm. It, it's, it's, it? it's, re it's really, really good. It's, it's quite like London centric. It's about his experience of growing up as a black person in London it's a really candid insight into that thing and I would, I would heartily recommend it and then the third and final thing is another podcast and this is for anyone who doesn't believe that the UK has a racial problem and this is it's a podcast called Shreds it's another BBC podcast and it's about the Lynette White murder which happened in Cardiff in the 1980s yeah. and it's around how even though eyewitnesses um, yeah. placed a white man at the scene of the crime yeah. covered in blood five black men were arrested for this crime and it's the story is so scandalous I'd, and i'd never heard of it before this podcast well I, I think that um if you're of a certain age um you would be fully aware of it people who were at the black lives matter event a few weeks ago would have heard them speak about their experience being around at the time and like you just mentioned there, hearing about this white individual, even on the night I was out that night. And then when the group ended up going through the whole harrowing and um, awful experiences they had to endure, just utter 
disbelief and, and that's why I think you know at the beginning of all this scene and you were right to say this is not just about the, the US this is a, about the UK and very localized so you know less than a few miles from where um, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting just a few miles away from where our HQ is you know in terms of uh, us as a health board that stuff so and that's why it's mentioned a couple of times about the criminal justice system just necessarily about housing why it's about education and, and, and how when I was growing up, for example, a careers officer saying to me about, you know, feeling free and able to say to me, you're not going to amount to much. So as a parent now, being very clear of myself and my partner Joyce with our children around school involvement, very clear with them about the history of who they are and, and who came before them and all what that means. Um, and what was interesting and great about speaking to um, their careers teacher was that their careers teacher was black. So there's changes uh, around some of that. And by the way, I should just say that, you know, she never said that to our children, what I what got said to me, just for the record. <laughs> but that support, certainly of our, the schools our children went to, you know, my, my son was fortunate to be, for example, in one of the groups that uh, I had the opportunity to visit Oxford in Cambridge. So I know that there are glimmers, there are lights at the end of tunnels uh, around some of this stuff. Um, but it, it is important that we, as I said at the beginning of all this, you know, we remember that's what this is about. This is about accessibility. This is about opportunity. But fundamentally, this is about outcome. This is about proportionality. This is about representation. In terms of the question around books and articles and stuff, thanks for some of those, some of them, those I've not heard of, and we'll embark on my voyage of more self-discovery around some of this stuff. And one of the books I have not had the opportunity to read, but my other members of my family have, I've got a whole book list to go through, but one of the books that's around, I'm sure you've heard of, is you know, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by, um, is it Renly Video Lodge, I think? I hope I got the pronunciation yeah. right. That's certainly one book I'd recommend. I think the other thing I would recommend um, on Netflix at the moment is a film called 13, a potentially harrowing watch. Um, and it's all about slavery then and slavery now. Beginning, I, I recall saying slavery hasn't ended, and I'm sure some people would say, What's he on about? We've got the Modern Slavery Act now. So it's all, you know, it's all much and dandy. So I think that's worth a watch. You could almost say uh, almost any film by Spike Lee. You can put you on different spectrums sometimes. Um, I, I think Jungle Fever is, is an interesting movie. The, you've got to have it. It's an interesting movie. But I think the fundamental one is um, his name now escapes me. Do the right I've thing. Got the name. Do the right thing. Thank you. Um, Do the right thing is probably out of all of them the, the, the most, yeah, probably one of his most um, certainly influential and provocative films and, and, and does get people thinking around some of this stuff. On all the platforms now, the, they've all got collections of Black Lives Matter stuff. So having a look at some of that stuff, I, I would um, I would recommend. But the the overall message, I think it would be, as Ron said a bit, a bit earlier, which is, you know, try and educate yourself on some of this stuff and ask questions, not just of people may be different from you. You know, you're not there to exploit people's experiences, but ask questions of yourselves. Look back to some of the things you heard, some of the things, uh, you know, the way you were raised uh, around certain belief systems and about other people. And you just ask yourself, you know, does that, does that seem right? Is that true, actually? Because a lot of this stuff isn't true. So that's what I would say. And, and, and try and be open with yourself. Thanks very much. And Rose, what about you? Yeah, so both those books. I've read, but then also I think Akala, British Empire, because I think a lot of the time, stuff that we're seeing on social media with the recommendations of books 
it's in an American perspective and then also how to be an anti-racist. All you need to do is go on a search engine, type in anti-racism books. They'll come up. There'll be there'll be articles after articles of recommendations. Um, there's podcasts. Not everybody is able to read books or is or takes in information that way. There's there's podcasts. There's YouTube. There's documentaries. And one thing I will say: social media platforms at the moment, a lot of the information is on there. So, like you were saying, with the Black Lives Matter movement, if you go on to those social media pages, they are giving out the, the information's there. We talked about movies and documentaries and books and stuff. I think the other thing is interesting is songs. There's a song by Nina Simone. There's a song called I Wish I Knew How It Would Be Free. And I'd like to just, just read out some of the lyrics for some of this because it, it's very attuned, pun intended, um, to the Black Lives Matter. So kind of the song and the lyrics says, I wish I could share all the love that's in my heart. Remove all the bars that keep us apart. I wish you could know what it means to be me. Then you'd see and agree that everyone should be free. There's lots of stuff in music, actually, um, and, um, and I think people can tap into. There might be a quicker, easier way of, uh, of getting into some of this stuff. But yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge that, um, um, again, going back to 69 and the, the rise of 69, you know, this song came around around the same time. You know, these things are there. There's no coincidence about this stuff. We need to unlearn the things that we've learned because some of the things that we have learned are things that need to change. And I think on that note, thank you for sharing those lyrics, Keithley, but I don't think we can top that. So I think we'll leave it there. Thank you both so much for... And thanks for, for the opportunity. Well, thank you. Yeah, you're, you're more than welcome. I hope that you know we can keep this conversation going. Maybe we can have another conversation in a few months' time about how your recruitment project is going. I'd like to hear more about that and some of the positive changes. But thank you for so much for giving me so much time. We've spoken before I edit this down. We've spoken, I think, accumulatively for about five hours on both of these topics. And I, I find it really fascinating. I found it so educational. I've personally learned a lot about the issues facing both the LGBT community and black people when accessing healthcare. But I've, I've learned a lot about myself, I think, as well. If that doesn't sound too trite about my own privileged position and how easy it has been for me to access these services any time I've needed them. And it's something I'm certainly going to reflect on going forward. So if if people in across the health board, Cardiff and Vale Health Board, have listened to these episodes and, and want to get in touch with the equality team, maybe they want to organize training for for their teams would they, would they be okay to do that i can put your email address in the notes of this episode keithley if you want yes to please yes yes of course of course yeah and i think all that's left to say is thank you again to uh, to you rose to you keithley and to lisa who uh, couldn't be with us yeah. today but her insight into what it's like to be a member of staff and part of the lgbt community was was also invaluable so thank yes, you all so so much Thank you. Thanks again. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Take care all. Bye. Bye. See you. Bye. 
Thank you again to Keithley, Rose and Lisa for their invaluable insights into equality in healthcare. I'll put Keithley's contact details in the episode description of this podcast. So if you're listening from Cardiff and Vale UHB and have questions or just want to get in touch around the equalities agenda generally, please feel free to do so. He's always happy to answer questions and, and help out where he can. I'll also put the full uh, suggested reading list I suppose you'd call it in the episode description of this podcast as well as a few other ones that the guests have sent to me since the time of recording if you've enjoyed these episodes please recommend them to a friend or a colleague I personally found Keith Lee Rose and Lisa's advice and personal experience to be invaluable and hope that I can play a small role within the health board in in solving these issues going forward I hope to record more of these episodes soon, so if you have a topic or a healthcare service or a guest that you want me to interview for the show, please get in touch. You can email me at news at wales.nhs.uk or get in touch on Twitter at cv underscore uhb. But in the meantime, please uh, like and subscribe to the podcast, give it a rating where you can, and if you're new to the show, go back and have a listen to some of the older episodes that are all still available on all good podcast streaming platforms. Until next time, my name is Bryn Kentish and this was How Healthcare Happens.